0: Well, just like every Sunday, it is a wonderful Sunday to gather together and praise the Lord. Uh, My name is Matt Bennett, again, uh, for those of you who don't know me, and it's a joy not only to be here on this Sunday where we get to take in the harvest offering, but also to continue our progress through the book of Matthew. Today we're going to be in Matthew 14, so if you would turn there in your copy of the Scriptures, I would appreciate it. Today, though, while you're turning there, and while we will be in Matthew 14, I want to begin by asking you to call to mind a few stories from the Old Testament that I think are going to be important for us to be having in the back of our minds as we read through this chapter. I want you to think of what we saw that great moment in Exodus 3, where Moses sees a burning bush that is burning but not consumed, and he turns aside, and from that bush he hears the awesome declaration of who God is through his covenant name the great I am I want you to call that story to mind and I also want you to have in the back of your mind a few chapters later in Exodus 16 where Moses had been used of the Lord to draw the people out from Egypt out from under the hand of Pharaoh who had been oppressing them And they saw the Red Sea miraculously parted and now they find themselves in the wilderness and these people turn to grumbling because their bellies are empty. I want you to remember how God provided for them by raining bread down from heaven, providing for them in the wilderness while he yet promised and pointed ahead towards a day that he would lead them into a land that would be marked by even more abundance and overflowing provision. The reason that I want you to call those two stories to mind is that we're going to see parallels in Jesus' ministry as we look through chapter 14 today. We're going to find a similar situation where there's going to be hungry crowds who are in a desolate place. And again, we're going to see God providing a miraculous meal, although this time it's not going to be rained down from heaven, but it's actually going to be delivered by hand in person And with abundance. And again, like Moses standing at the burning bush, fearfully contemplating what God was calling him to do to go before a mighty, powerful ruler and call his people out, we're going to encounter another group of fearful people who are again comforted by the the name of their God and his nearness in the presence of Jesus. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. And at the beginning of this time, working through the word, we need to ask the Lord to open our eyes and our hearts to his message. So would you go to prayer with me and ask that the Lord would do that? Father, you are good. You are not only good in and of yourself, but you are good to us. We see that in the message, the person and work of your son Who's taken on flesh and dwelt among us, who has satisfied all of the longings of our heart and filled up the promises of your covenants by taking on the penalty for our sin, bearing it away on our behalf, by rising in victory over death that we might not fear it, but by faith in him hope for our own resurrection, by sending your spirit as Jesus serves as our great high priest, pleading. His blood on our behalf in order that we might have a foretaste of that great day in eternity when we will dwell in your unmediated triune presence. Father, as we look into your word today, would you help us to not only see the beauty of what you've done in Christ, but also to long for, hope for, and rejoice in the secure hope that is to come in his presence. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his fame. Amen. I want to begin by giving a quick Roadmap or overview as to where we're going to be going today in Matthew 14. You may, as you open your Bibles to chapter 14, find that there's about four sections that are kind of broken off, and we're going to follow those four divisions that are probably there in your Bible. In the first one, we're going to see the backstory of the conclusion of John the Baptist ministry that I gave you a little indication of a few weeks ago. We're going to see what it was that brought about John's execution. Then we're going to look at a couple of familiar stories that if you've been around the church, you've probably heard them before. The story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then turning around and walking on the storm-tossed waves of the sea. And then as this chapter concludes, we're going to see how Jesus' ministry continues to fill out Israel's messianic hopes and expectations. And as we do that, I hope what we're going to see is what I'm seeing is the big idea, the main point of this chapter, and that is that King Jesus provides Israel's fullness and he is worthy of our worship. Before getting into Matthew chapter 14, though, it is helpful to remind ourselves of where we were last week, because as Jeremy walked us through some of the parables that talk about the value of jesus kingdom it 's going to stand in pretty sharp contrast to the first story that we 're going to encounter. Jeremy told us the story of the pearl of great price and the treasure that was buried in a field and Through that, we saw that Jesus was calling us to see that there is absolutely no cost, no price that we might be asked to pay that could exceed the value of the kingdom that he's inviting us to see. There is nothing that could be asked of us that could surpass gaining the kingdom of this king. And yet the reality is this is terribly counterintuitive to the way that we think of life and we think of our possessions and assets we are more inclined to guard and protect our investments and assets than what this would uh, incline us to see and as we start in on matthew 14 we actually see a story that stands maybe more familiar than it might initially present itself of someone who is likewise inclined not to sell everything that he has in order to gain the kingdom of god but rather to sell out his integrity in order to try and protect his hollow and shallow kingdom that he's crafting for himself. Listen along as I read beginning in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her, or prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, But because of his oaths and his guests he commanded it to be given he sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother and his disciples came and took the body and buried it and they went and told Jesus this is a pretty grotesque story it's pretty shocking in some of the details it may not be surprising, after all, given the fact that we foreshadowed this a few chapters ago, saying that John's imprisonment was going to end with his beheading. But regardless of that, it's important for us to see at least a handful of details that come out of this, and to note a few things in the telling of this story that are important. The first thing to note is that it seems a bit ironic that Matthew chooses to refer to Herod as king in verse 9. It's ironic because Matthew has already acknowledged that Herod is actually just a tetrarch. He's a, a ruler of kind of a subset of the Roman kingdom. He's, at best, middle management, not very much like a king. And yet, it's here in verse 9, at the very point where Herod is acting least kingly, that Matthew identifies him as such. What we see is that we, he is trying to protect his own kingdom, trying to persist in his own sinful desires and to avoid looking foolish in front of his, his, uh, the crowd gathered in his house. And so he goes ahead and does what he already knows is wrong and has John beheaded. It's almost as if Matthew wants us to contrast this selfish human king with Jesus, the true Davidic king that he has been introducing us to. I mean, if, if Herod is the type of king who would commit an unmitigated murder for the sake of silencing one of his critics, that stands in really sharp contrast to a king who would come only to give up his life that he might redeem those who love him. Secondly, in this story, it seems as though John serves in a couple of different ways to advance the biblical story. One of the guys on the preaching team pointed out to me that not only does John serve as a precursor for Jesus' ministry, where his message gets him in trouble, gets him imprisoned and rejected, and ultimately leads to his death, and serves as a foreshadowing of what is to come, but it also seems to be mimicking much of what we've seen through the Old Testament. All those prophets who came before, who spoke God's word to a rebellious people and were rejected and sidelined and silenced. John seems in this way to be standing in good company, despite the fact that his message of uh, his prophetic prophetic task has brought him to death. But third, what I want us to see in this this story is that we might be inclined to think that this is far off and something we can't relate to at all. I mean, there's a, a king with power, who is murdering people in order to silence their critique of his lifestyle and his choices. That seems far removed from our situations, doesn't it? But the reality is it's, it's probably not as far away from our experience as we might think. If you were to think back in your own life, you could probably come up with a number of examples of ways that you've been confronted, either by the Word or by another Christian, by something in your life that's not in keeping with the way that the Lord has called us to live, and you've tried to find ways to blunt the message, to silence the messenger, or to avoid the people or situations that might press on your sin. It's a foolish tactic, but it's one we're all prone to, isn't it? I can't help but think of comparing this foolish tactic of trying to silence sins to a story from my college days. One of my college buddies found himself in a situation that many college guys do and that he was smitten with a young lady. And at the same time, he also found his bank account at just about nothing. Well, during his courting of this lady, he managed to scrounge up enough money to take her to a fancy restaurant in a city about Forty five minutes away and he asked her on the date and she said yes, and so he was all set for this this date where he was going to show off that he could provide a great night for her. Well, on his way to pick her up, he had a problem in that the little indicator on his dashboard that his gas tank was almost empty, lit up, began to warn him that he needed to fill up the tank. Well of course had a dilemma. Do I persist in taking her to this faraway place and this nice restaurant and hope that we have enough gas to get there? Or do I admit my situation, maybe look a little embarrassed, fill up the tank and see if we can do McDonald's? The reality that he chose was a little bit easier solution, he thought, in that he had a roll of duct tape in the back seat, which he quickly ripped a little portion off of, slapped it over the warning light, and solved the problem so he thought. Their uh, long walk home that night, which I actually believe if I if I recall correctly involved some hitchhiking, turned out to be much more embarrassing and ultimately more devastating for their potential future relationship than it would have been for him to have heeded the warning of the light in the first place and to have uh, swallowed his pride and maybe taken a detour. He might have been able to make this warning light invisible in this situation, but the clear truth of the matter is his gas tank was still bone dry. In the same way, John the Baptist might have been silenced in terms of his challenge to Herod, but Herod's depravity still remained unchanged. Between these two stories, then, we begin to see that there is something of a common human impulse to avoiding or silencing voices that might call us to the carpet for our sinful inclinations. We may find that if we are confronted by someone challenging us, we would be tempted to try to bend the rules or interpret things just enough to be able to justify whatever it is that we desire. And if we can't do that, our next step might be trying to silence or to mute any sort of a voice that would call us to account. We probably don't often find ourselves silencing those voices by putting heads on platters, and we probably also don't slap duct tape over the mouths of people who come to us trying to challenge us with the word, but we do have plenty of other ways that we find ourselves canceling or muting or ignoring or cutting off others who would challenge us in our questionable choices and self-justifications, don't we? Think about the ways that sometimes we conduct conversations around some of the hot-button items that tap into our sinful inclinations. Think about the ways people have conversations about sex and sexuality, or lying or trying to twist the truth to make ourselves look good, boasting, self-aggrandizement, slander, hatred, greed, all these things that are latent within us that we try to We try to finagle our ways around. Oftentimes, we know implicitly what the Bible would call us to and that it would challenge the fulfillment or satisfaction of those desires in the way that we'd go about. But we also know that if we look hard enough, we can find somebody, somebody's voice that will make it okay, that will twist the truth just enough to satisfy us, just like slapping some duct tape over a warning light. We can find someone's advice that will help us to cover over the warning voices of others with excuses and explanations that oftentimes begin with phrases like, wouldn't a good God just want you to be happy? Or, the Bible can't possibly mean that. Not in this day and age. That was for a time prior. Or, well, if it doesn't hurt anyone, how could it be against God's will? Or, the Bible isn't speaking about the way things are today. That was a time in the distant past. Or, well, that works fine unless you want to get run over. You need to make sure that you can get yours. With so many voices that we can give our ears over to these days, it's easy for us to just take a page out of the the playbook of Herod and Herodias and do what they did here. We can find ourselves pursuing immediate gratification, satisfaction of our sinful desires, and we can find plenty of duct tape solutions to ignore, silence, mute, or cancel those who would challenge us. But, friends, this is not the way of the kingdom, and this is not the way of the community that is this church. We are a people who are committed to being shaped and challenged, encouraged and convicted by the Word of God, even when it steps on our toes or confronts some of our sinful inclinations, even when it calls us to fight our instincts and our passions. The reality of a body like this is that every member is invited and held responsible for encouraging one another with the word, but also being willing to lovingly confront one another when our lives are walking wayward of what the Lord has called us to. And likewise, members of Jesus' kingdom do not respond to such challenge by trying to silence the voices or squeak our way out of being held accountable to it, but rather we receive such counsel with gratitude humility, and repentance. So I pray that we here at Grace Baptist Church are increasingly marked by that willingness and that attitude that would bring us under the authority of Scripture and alongside of one another as we seek to live out this kingdom. But as we continue through Matthew 14, we find that Jesus' kingdom isn't just about confrontation. It's also about the beauty, and the incredible Privilege that it is to be in the presence of this king. Continue reading with me in verse 13. And when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. I alluded to this passage at the beginning of the message here. Just like the newly freed Israelites were given manna in the wilderness, here we see Jesus providing again a meal in a desolate place for a hungry crowd. Matthew's shown us in a number of different places throughout the book so far that Jesus is to be seen mapped onto Moses as a better Moses, leading into what will ultimately be a more satisfying and fulfilling promised land. So it's good and right for us to see the parallel continuing here. In the old testament we see god feeding the israelites daily in the wilderness while pointing ahead to a place that would provide for them abundant provision in the time to come but here in matthew we see jesus in the desolate place himself filling up that abundance and that abundance that fulfillment is realized in the 12 overflowing baskets of leftovers carried by his disciples. But Jesus isn't done in this chapter displaying his power. As the book continues on, we see yet another story of Jesus' power and his messianic identity. Read with me in beginning in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray Be afraid this is a wild scene if you if you just try to pretend like you are reading this for the very first time this is a crazy story in the middle of a storm jesus comes walking on the water and he finds a boat full of men who are terrified because of the storm around them but then also more terrified because they think that he is a ghost. It's a pretty wild story. But the thing I don't want us to miss, in light of the the display of Jesus' power as he treads the waves, is the fact that what he declares of himself is actually even more astounding. Think back to other places in Scripture, particularly even in Matthew's book, where we've heard him introduce his comments to a person with this beautiful phrase, take heart. This this phrase happens three times in the book of Matthew, and the two previous times occurred in Matthew chapter 9 with passages that we're already familiar with. First of all, when he addresses the paralyzed man whose friends brought him to Jesus for healing, he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then in the same chapter, a few verses later, the woman who has the issue of bleeding receives the same comforting address from Jesus as he says, Take heart, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. But here, in this third and final time where he uses this phrase, he comes to his disciples and he says, Take heart. But rather than following it with a term of endearment or familiarity, he follows it with a declaration of his identity. Take heart it is i it is that identity that is the basis upon which he invites his disciples to take heart and to be able to find their fears cast out in fact a particular language that matthew uses here is powerful in identifying jesus as god the phrase that is translated it is i is actually connected to the places where we see Yahweh identifying himself as the I am in Exodus with the burning bush likewise it's how Isaiah portrays our God as the I am who is able to save and redeem his people and this is the same language that John uses in his gospel over and over and over to show Jesus as divine like in John 8:58 and 59 where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. And the the people around him recognize this as a claim to divinity to the degree that they pick up rocks in order to kill him for such a blasphemous inclusion of himself in the Godhead. As one commentator puts it, this language, it is I, means that God is present uniquely in Jesus. As he comes to them on the water, he says, take heart, I am with you. This declaration spurs Peter's radical response of faith to this man as he goes on to say in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. In this passage, we first see Jesus laying claim to being divine. But then immediately we see his disciples following suit. And when this man gets into their boat, And the waves are calmed. They do the only proper thing. They worship. And they recognize him as truly the Son of God. We'll see this made a little bit more emphatic in a couple of chapters in Matthew 16 where again Jesus will be identified as the Messianic Son of God. But it's worth noting here that with all that the disciples have seen up till this point and in the midst of a storm-tossed night that has mysteriously been stilled by the presence of the I am in their midst, they are beginning to be the ones who have eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is. Before we skip over it, it is worth looking at this incident between Jesus and Peter for just a moment. What we see is after Jesus calms Peter's jittery nerves with the declaration of who he is, Peter pops up As impetuously as ever and he asks for something of a crazy command he says if it's you call me out onto the waters jesus simply responds to this request by saying come and wild as it is peter pops out of the boat and begins to walk on the water towards his lord again think about reading this for the first time what a bizarre story and yet this is where the, there's a twist in the plot because Matthew doesn't spend much time talking about how successful Peter's walk is. Rather, he turns to say, Peter began to see the wind, was afraid, and sunk. And he cries out, Lord, save me. You may have heard this passage preached at various times, uh, somebody pointing out the fact that Peter sees the wind and begins to fear, which is such a silly thing, right? How do you see the wind? It's, invisible. And they might have compared the fact that Jesus is substantial, and when we're looking at him, we're walking on the water, but when we get distracted by something as insubstantial as the wind, we begin to sink. And you might have heard somebody asking the question then, well, what is it? What is the wind that's distracting you from Jesus? The implication then is, what is it that's stopping you from doing the impossible? Now, that that might be a good question to ask, and it can be helpful, I suppose. But today, what I want to draw our attention to is not Peter walking on the water, but rather Peter's faith as it's on display as he begins to sink. Having seen the wind, Peter begins to sink, and his cry gives us evidence that there is a developing reflex of faith within him to cry out in a time of need to the one who is willing And able to save him and we would all do well to embrace that same cry Lord save me what we see is Jesus responds immediately stretches out his hand takes Peter by his hand and rescues him into the boat we might watch this scene unfolding and we might think that Peter's faith is on most brilliant display as he's treading the waves and moving towards his Lord But I think it's perhaps most realistically portrayed, at least in terms of my experience, in that moment as Peter begins to go underneath the waves, when he calls out in faith to the one who can and will save him. I mean, this is where our faith is most regularly called for, isn't it? I don't know about you, but more often the faith that I find myself needing to exhibit is that of a soggy sinker rather than a water walker. One who cries out to the one who will come, reach out and draw me into the boat. That posture of humility, knowing that I am desperately in need of the Lord and grabbing his hand as evidence that he is willing and able to restore and rescue. We might find ourselves wondering about the reaction of the guys in the boat as Peter sits there. I imagine sheepishly, kind of dripping in the bottom of the boat, thinking through how do I process these last few minutes of my life? We might wonder how the disciples there responded to Peter and what they just saw, but I think it's instructive that Matthew doesn't tell us because the reality is this story isn't about Peter or his walking on water. This story is about Jesus, who he is and what the right response to him is, and that's what we see the disciples responding to not Peter, but Jesus, responding in worship and identifying him as truly the Son of God. As I was preparing for this message, I was reading through a, comment, a commentary, which is admittedly typically kind of a dry reading experience, but this particular author, after this section, broke into what was an uncharacteristically pastoral exhortation, and I think it's worth hearing his words the way he put it. So listen along as I read what he wrote after this water-walking experience. He says, in the the experience of the Christian, Jesus is God with us, the ever-present source of deliverance. In some such way as this, the miracles of this section were meant to be understood by and to find practical application in Matthew's church and, by extension, in our church. The Jesus who multiplied the loaves and fish and who appeared to the disciples walking on the water and who saved Peter from sinking, this same Jesus is the Lord of the church who has brought salvation and who stands similarly prepared to save his people, even when they may doubt from the evils that beset them. This Jesus, who rules over nature and even the realm of evil, is rightly worshipped as truly the Son of God. If you were looking for an application from this section, I can't think of anything more straightforward than that. Look at Jesus and see in Him the Son of God. Believe and worship. He's worthy of it. This chapter concludes with three additional verses that we may be tempted to skip over because it's yet another record of Jesus' compassion ministry. But I want us to pause over these just to note one other way that Matthew is packing in affirmation that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. Beginning in verse 34, it says this, And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well." Remember a few weeks back when we were in Matthew chapter 9 and we saw the woman with the issue of bleeding who came to Jesus with confidence that she only needed to reach out and touch the hem, the edge of his garment, in order to find healing. We see that referenced again here, the edge of Jesus' garment as a conduit of his healing. And what we need to note here is that this small detail actually has messianic significance. We see the importance of the fringe of the garment, the edge of someone's cloak, actually in multiple places throughout Scripture. Going back to the Torah, in the book of Numbers, we see the fringe of the garment is the place that tassels of remembrance were to be affixed for people to remember to keep the Torah. Likewise, in the the book of Ruth, We see Ruth going to Boaz and asking him to pull the edge of his garment over her, symbolically drawing her into his family, covenanting to care for her and offer her protection. And in Isaiah, we see God himself speaking of the ways that he has taken the edge of his garment and used it to cover the shame of Israel. Some commentators even look at Malachi 3.4 where it says the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And they see that the relationship between the word for wings and the edge of a garment and they say this is being completed in Jesus' ministry. So the emphasis then on the edge of the garment bringing healing is not just some insignificant detail. It's not even just evidence of Another way that Jesus' healing ministry is overflowing and spilling out on the people around him. But Matthew is yet again reinforcing for us the fact that Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of everything Israel was waiting for through her story, through her law, and through her prophecy. Having walked through this passage, we could say so much more. But at the same time, I think it suffices at this point to simply look at Jesus and see through his ministry a king who stands in vivid contrast to the kings of the earth and whose kingdom is marked by a different way of living than what our desires and our sinful inclinations would oftentimes incline us towards. We see one who brings to Israel the full and abundant provision, the promises that God had made for her throughout Scripture. And we see one who treads the waves that his very word brought into being in order that he might reach his hand down to save those who are turning to him in faith. This one who we have seen today is in fact the son of God and he is worthy of the worship of all of his creatures. So I can't think of any clearer application or any better way to conclude our time in the word today than to do just that. Would you join me in worshiping King Jesus in prayer? (laughs) Jesus, you are worthy of our attention, our adoration, our lives, and our worship. We confess that so often we are distracted by lesser things or the temptations and allurements that come from our sinful desires. And yet, Lord, we long to be led by your spirit, to live in light of the good promises and good ways of instructing our days that you have put in front of us, that we might live lives pleasing to you, satisfying of the purpose that you give us, and productive of a worship that would make you glad. You are worthy of our praise and you are kind to receive it in the blood of Christ, Lord. So would you do that this day and in the coming days as we go from here? It is in Jesus' name and for his fame that we pray these things. Amen.